Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guests. We are back after Providence College's holiday break to kick off our podcast episodes for the new year. The end of 2019 and the start of 2020 produced a lot of news that we are going to examine in depth over the next few weeks. While we we were away, President Trump was impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives, and the trial to determine whether he will be expelled from office has begun in the United States Senate. The Democratic Party primary contest heated up as several candidates dropped out of the race, new candidates entered the race, most notably former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and the news focused on the Iowa caucuses, that will inaugurate the Democratic primary season in just two weeks. Across the pond, British voters gave the Conservative Party and its leader a decisive electoral victory, ensuring Brexit, the UK's departure from the European Union. And finally, President Trump escalated conflict with Iran with the targeted killing of a prominent Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani. Today, we are going to delve into the events surrounding the death of Soleimani and its likely impact on Middle East conflict. In subsequent podcast episodes, we will take up analysis of the 2020 Democratic primary contest and discuss the Trump impeachment. In a few weeks, I also want to devote an episode on Brexit. So listeners can look forward to lots of in-depth analysis of these events in the weeks to come. To give us insight into the turbulent politics of the Middle East and the escalating U.S.-Iranian conflict, I've invited back to Beyond Your Newsfeed the Political Science Department's two Middle East experts, Gazim Zanzerchi and Ruth Benardsi. As listeners may remember, Professor Zanzerchi's research focuses on Islamist welfare policies in Turkey and other predominantly Muslim countries, and Professor Benardsi is a specialist in international development banks in the Middle East and elsewhere. Both were born and raised in the Middle East, Dr. Zanzerchi in Turkey and Dr. Benardsi in Israel so can understand, they can understand the region's politics based on both their professional expertise and their personal experiences. The conversation that you're about to hear is going to be a wide-ranging discussion, not only about the events following the Suleimani assassination, but their implications for uh, Middle East politics in the years to come. Uh, I found it a very stimulating and interesting discussion, and I think you will too. So we'll now uh, go to uh, our conversation with Ruth Benardsi uh, and Gazim Jajurchi about Middle East politics. So a few weeks ago, uh, there was a lot of talk about war between Iran and the United States, talk instigated by Trump's decision to order the killing of General Soleimani uh, in Baghdad. Who was General Soleimani, and why would his killing, or we might say assassination, precipitate these fears of an escalation in the Iranian-U.S. confrontation? Gazem, you want to start off? Uh, sure. So Qasem Soleimani was a Iranian military general, and he was the head of the Quds Force, which is the... Um, part of the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that is focused on external 
military operations, which means basically he's the general that oversees what kinds of interventions the Iranian clandestine forces do in the Middle East and elsewhere. So we started the year with the Third World War Twitter hashtag, so I think that was January 3rd that it happened. Killing a high-ranking general of another country, assassinating him, um, is of course likely to create a situation between two countries. Um, at the very basis, under international law, you're not supposed to do that. So I think we can take it from there, right? Um, it is a surprise, actually, that a war did not break out. If we can talk about that a minute, I mean, uh, certainly given international relations, one would think that it is very provocative to assassinate a high-ranking member of uh, another country's uh, government, mm -hmm. you know, as General Soleimani was. And certainly, this is not the first time the United States has done that or attempted to do that. But what's very interesting is that uh, in years past, when there, we now know there were efforts to assassinate leaders of other powers, like the attempts to assassinate Castro by the CIA in the 1960s, uh, it was very secret. Uh, that is, the United States didn't want it known that it was trying to kill the leader of another country. Uh, but in this case, uh, it was very open and public. Uh, what should we make of that uh, as a sort of new, I guess, step in American foreign policy and, and the like? Uh, Ruth, maybe you have some thoughts on this. Um, so, yeah. So, first of all, from an international relations perspective, let's not forget that he was also assassinated in Iraq and not in Iran. Uh, so he was, so this is kind of a double whammy for international law, because not only is it a targeted assassination, it's a targeted assassination on the soil of a country that right now is supposedly friendly to the U.S. And we, um, we penetrated their sovereignty by assassinating, by targeting somebody on their soil. This is one of the highest ranking Iranian uh, military officials. He's very close to the top uh, echelons of leadership uh, in Iran. Um, and you write about some of the questions that are raised around the timing, around the way in which it was publicized. Um, to be clear, because as, as Professor Zinchirchi said, he's, um, he's been uh, known to, to hold this position for, for a long time, and his position, Soleimani's position, was uh, that of conducting foreign clandestine uh, operations. Uh, we have been following him for for years now. So we have known, our, our security forces had known his whereabouts and had been able to target him also before. The way this works in terms of security is that we do have information about these people. Targeted assassinations um, could happen uh, at any time, and we have this uh, norm, international norm, where we don't conduct these types of activities on a normal basis. And if we do, as you just mentioned, usually we hide it. Um, even in, in, in our um, uh, overthrow of an Iranian uh, democratic 
elections in 1953, we hid it. The CIA that was involved in that operation in 1953 in Iran um, has, up until this day, never really formally admitted uh, to being uh, involved in the, in the way that it actually was. So usually we don't do this. In this case, we, we, we not only took responsibility right away, and it was clear that the United States did this, targeted him, but then the question remains is why why now? We could have done it before. Uh, is there really evidence that something imminent was there? And these are the questions that we've heard politicians asking. Uh, and this is one of the, the big debates in international relations and the questions we ask also following now the history after the U.S.-Iraq war. How can you really assess an imminent attack before it happens? This is one of the toughest things to do. We don't have any evidence of something imminent. Before an attack actually happens, before there's actually a real security situation, all we have is speculation. And so we can always use it as an excuse, and that's the danger of governments using these types of methods. At the time, the administration talked about, uh, well, eventually it started making this argument that there was an imminent attack that was going to somehow be forestalled by killing this guy. Uh, although, to my mind, as a, as I'm not an international relations or Middle East expert, but that seems kind of strange to me that just by killing this one individual, if there are plans in place for some kind of an imminent attack, why would killing this individual necessarily stop that? That could have gone forward, I would think, uh, even with uh, his removal. Uh, but also, there's clearly uh, there was clearly a lot of press coverage about uh, the sort of escalating tensions and that there had been attacks in Iraq on U.S. forces. And then there was this uh, attempt by groups to attack the U.S. embassy a few days before. Uh, how were those sort of connected, perhaps, to Trump's decision? I think instead of looking at like what happened right before the assassination, we can look or situated at least in a larger framework of Trump's foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, if you know nothing else, if we don't even look at all the other countries, uh, especially Trump's withdrawal of forces from Syria just a couple months ago, and where the argument was that we no longer want to be involved in that war over there, and that we will leave Russia and Iran and Turkey and Saudi Arabia figure things out. Why do we need to be involved in this war in Syria when we're all the way here? And this was a way to explain why it was necessary to withdraw forces, leave the Kurdish population on their own, uh, fighting with ISIS, fighting with Turkish forces, and then also just saying, you know, we're going to try to not be involved in the Middle East, which is all fine and nice and everything. But here we are only two, maybe three months later, and now we are re-involved in the Middle East conflict because there is an imminent threat. And the idea here is that by preventing Soleimani from being involved in the civil war in Iraq and Syria... We're trying to protect the United States' interests. But in fact, if those interests were so important, why did we withdraw the forces only three months ago? So it's hard for me, as someone who studied Middle East politics and has tried to understand the shifting regional balance and conflict and why is this happening at this moment in time, to see it as only 
a result of international relations. I think the most or the better explanation is to look at what is happening domestically in the United States and that there is a re if there's a reason why this happened right around the impeachment hearings, it's probably because the president wants to, and from his perspective, rightly so, direct attention to something else for a little bit. Do you agree with that, Ruth? Or? Um, yeah, I mean, this is, I think, some of what I was getting at before when the fact that we did have information about Soleimani's whereabouts for years now. The opportunity to assassinate him uh, did not arise all of a sudden now. We could have done it before. Why did we do it now? That makes the timing kind of questionable. I can also kind of draw from some of the experience, uh, and it seems like the Trump administration is drawing from a lot of um, Israeli political uh, examples in the last uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, Israel has had a history of assassinating uh, top leaders of Hamas, for example, in uh, other Palestinian organizations. This has never really succeeded in promoting any sort of advancement towards a resolution. It's never uh, uh, good as a negotiating chip. In fact, it usually just creates more chaos. Um, or it just kind of dies down. Hamas just re kind of recuperates. Somebody else steps into that position. Uh, this never really worked. And we see this also with Osama bin Laden that we assassinated. Usually these types of activities, especially on the part of a democratically elected government, that, and, and this, this was my biggest worry, because I had seen it in Israel before, it serves for some sort of a, what, what the administration thinks is some sort of a domestic morale booster. Uh, as kind of like, we are the tough guys, here are bad guys, and look at what we're doing, and we're really tough. And especially in during an election campaign, especially during some times of domestic political turmoil, this could be viewed, this type of action, at least in Israel, and I think that this might have been the attempt, although I think it backfired, of Trump's administration, was to, to shift the conversation to something that is completely not controversial, apparently, and that would be kind of just a, a, a great brownie point for the administration. Here's a bad guy. Everybody thinks they're a bad guy. We got the bad guy. Great for us. And Trump certainly likes to portray himself as being tough and confrontational. And of course, this links up to the sort of more confrontational stance the Trump administration has taken towards Iran the withdrawal from the agreement. Uh, isn't that connected? Yes, so the, the, the withdrawal from the USPCA um, was, was a big the, mistake. Which the, was, the, the, the want to describe what one. that is, Ruth? So the agreement that was signed under the Obama administration, it was not just between the United States and Iran, it was between the United States and Iran and European countries, including Russia. And they're still part of the agreement, although now it's kind of everything is up in the air. As soon as Trump withdrew from it, he he basically took the plug out of the possibility or the, the commitment that Iran, according to our own military assessment and also to the Israeli military's assessment, Iran was actually complying by the agreement. The agreement was narrowly focused on suspending Iran's nuclear en enrichment program to prevent Iran from developing uh, nuclear weapons. So getting out of that agreement meant that all of a sudden Iran, and getting out of that agreement meant more sanctions, meant that also the United States has these um, uh, third-party sanctions. That means that if European companies violate the sanctions, they will be sanctioned by the United States. That's why it puts European countries um, at a kind of at a crossroads here because they're also... And that's what really makes the sanctions effective, It right? makes the sanctions effective. So a European company can't do business with Iran, 
because otherwise it would lose the ability to do business in the United States. The United States, right. right. And the United States starts, started enforcing it, and this is the way for the United States to pressure the Europeans to follow uh, the U.S. and its withdrawal from this agreement and to isolate Iran even further. Uh, and this is a shame because the agreement was working. The idea that we would slowly be um, engaging Iran diplomatically, that we would stop the most egregious of uh, of actions that with the development of nuclear weapons, put a stop to that, and slowly start to rebuild Iran's economy. There had been dissent in Iran for many years. Let's not forget that the revolution in Iran, this current Iranian leadership, only started in 1979. It's a relatively young regime, and Iran is a relatively young population that has been protesting and is sometimes electing officials that are more liberal, that are more open to the West than the religious leadership that oversees everything. So if we just let that, and I think this was the, th the thought process of, of Obama's administration, uh, that there's a lot to work with there. And to have this 15, 10, 15, um, 20 year window to be able to slowly uh, engage Iran diplomatically while preventing a development of nuclear weapons is the best way uh, to be able to, uh, is the best way to kind of lower the tensions between Iran and the West and also between Iran and its Middle Eastern neighbors. So there's a connection there to the point that Gazim made earlier about Trump making these foreign policy decisions based upon domestic considerations, even withdrawal from the agreement, uh, a lot of people interpreted as Trump's attempt to show that he was, wasn't Obama. Uh, in fact, he's done a lot of things since he was elected. Uh, a lot of his policies, even domestically, are sort of driven by a, a desire to be the, the non-Obama and do the opposite or reverse Obama's decisions. And this was one big Obama policy, and he wanted to demonstrate that he was getting out. Would you, would you uh, agree to that assessment, Gazim? I mean, I do agree with that assessment, but I think it's acceptable or even expected for presidents to institute a foreign policy stance that shows that they're different from the person that was before. But for me, as long as there is a, I mean, there needs to be a larger framework within which these foreign policy decisions are being made. And it's hard to understand what the overall purpose of all the different kinds of interventions or withdrawals that have happened under uh, President Trump, what's the overall purpose? And I think related to this, and going back to point that Dr. Benarzi made, it's important to also think about what is the impact of all these various actions on the domestic policy or the domestic politics of Iran. And what was happening in Iran recently, or at least right before this assassination, was that uh, people were protesting against the government. They were protesting against the economic sanctions. And here, not protesting against the United States, but protesting against the Iranian government to not figuring out a way to get these sanctions lifted. And so there was a lot of domestic uh, criticism. And but what do we have now after the assassination? A lot of people are again rallying with the Islamic Republic. They are supporting, even if they may have disagreed before. And there is a lot more emphasis on national unity. And I'm sure, you know, you may have seen it, our listeners may have seen it, but if you see all the people, the videos of people attending 
Soleimani's funeral, it is clearly a moment of solidarity for the Iranian people. And many people across the Middle East. So if the goal is to, um, I don't know, prevent the rise of anti-American sentiments in the Middle East, I'm not sure that this is the way to go about it. If the goal is to allow or create a situation where Iranian people are closer to democracy and freedom, this is clearly not the way to go about it. So the, what, what is the purpose? And then the, on the other side of the issue, I think we also need to understand that Soleimani, for some people, was seen as a, I don't know, not a freedom fighter, but a general who's standing up against U.S. imperialism. And I don't agree with this assessment, personally, but there are a lot of leftist people in the U.S. and Europe that see him as kind of a symbol of post-colonial movements. And by assassinating him, the U.S. gives more credibility to such a perspective and hence creating more support for anti-American sentiments. So I see that as, as a larger problem of not having a overall agenda of what, what we're trying to achieve as U.S. foreign policy in the region. Now, of course, defenders of Trump's withdrawal from the agreement and his policy of increasing confrontation with Iran, including sanctions, claim that it's those sanctions that, in fact, are putting pressure on the regime and maybe producing some of those anti-regime demonstrations recently. Is that a credible theory? Because clearly, when he withdrew, Trump said, oh, Obama's approach uh, to try to modify the Iranian regime's behavior wasn't going to work. Uh, we need to be tough. Rather than offering them uh, a carrot, we need to bring back the stick. Uh, so so has that stick worked at all, or, or do you think it, it's been counterproductive? It, it hasn't worked, and it's not going to work. I don't... Uh, I don't believe it will. And we have research in international relations that shows that sanctions, in fact, do not bring to regime change. Uh, we saw this in Cuba. Uh, and Cuba was a very small and poor country. Yeah, we had sanctions in Cuba for a very long time. For a very time, long time. And, and Castro there. survived until he passed away. And, so and, and, his <laughs> and his regime is still there. So, you know, and if it didn't work on Cuba, it certainly is not going to work on Iran. Um, what it does is it usually, and Venezuela is another, right. Um, so, so we, and we have plenty of research that shows this. This is not a credible argument. What it does is it usually squeezes the poor people. It does exactly what Gizem was saying before. It helps rally people around the government. And and assass this kind of assassination of somebody who's a very top figure, even for people within Iran who might have been critical of him, um, it's true that they right away rally. It's very, it's much easier for governments to rally people around them, even if they're controversial governments, when there is an outside enemy. And the United States had positioned itself by this assassination as being the outside enemy. So in Iran, it's much easier um, for the Iranian regime now to rally the troops. Um, so th that is absolutely true. And I want to, again, reiterate that there's a history of U.S. intervention in Iran. And intervention, to try to, to say, you know, we can pick, we really want the, what's the best for Iranians. We want to bring democracy to Iran. We're just targeting the bad guys. This regime is not good. We really care about the Iranian people. Nobody in Iran is buying this. 
lives. And I want to correct something I said before. When when the CIA participated in assassinating in in, in toppling down um, Mossadegh in 1953, who was democratically elected in Iran, and I want to just reiterate that Iran has a parliament, and there's democratic elections in the parliament in Iran. Iran does have some democratic institutions under the theocratic regime. So there is a political culture that is very vibrant within Iran. In 2003, the CIA finally officially admitted to being involved in this. So I said that we haven't admitted, but we did in 2013. So this happened in 1953. And the Iranians remember this because this was such a, not such a long time. And the reason why there has been dissent over the years, not just now after Trump pulled out of the, uh, of the agreement, uh, were there protests. There were also protests before in Iran. During Obama's administration, there were protests in Iran. Um, some of these protests led to this agreement. The regime knew it needed to um, to reform. Uh, these protests are, are, are part of Iranian culture. What happened in 1979, the result of the theocratic regime that we see now in Iran is not necessarily what many of the revolutionaries wanted. And, not under, and we need to understand that within the context of what was in place before. And before Ayatollah came into power in 1979, before the revolution, Iran had a dictatorial regime that was supported by the United States. Uh, and some of this anti-American sentiments, these anti-American sentiments come from that time because the involvement of the United States during a very dark era in Iran uh, was not in favor of democracy. In fact, the, the, the democratically elected leaders were usually um, sidelined or the Americans pressured to sideline them uh, before 1979. So the 1979 revolution, from the Iranian perspective, was a revolution to bring, to empower the Iranian people to control their own country, to control their own destiny, to, to fend off American intervention, uh, especially intervention that was supporting a tyrant, that was supporting uh, the Shah of Iran, uh, that was ruthlessly ruling and would, people were disappearing, people were being jailed. Um, th this wasn't a regime that was any better than the regime that was in place now. They didn't necessarily sign up for what there is now, which is one of the reasons we do. We have seen protests in Iran over the years. So it's not just now between when Trump's administration withdrew from the agreement um, and the assassination of Soleimani that we've seen protests. There had been protests and large protests in Iran um, over the last decade. We've seen them intermittently. And yes, the regime tries to crush them uh, in obviously non-democratic ways. But over the years, Iranian activists have requested, uh, it's my understanding, from the United States, from the West, not to intervene. Because as soon as they intervene, the regime can use it, the Iranian regime can use it to rally people around the regime if it's seen as American intervention. Right. After Suleiman was assassinated, there were, for a few days, worry about, about war, that there was going to be a massive Iranian retaliation. In fact, Iran seemed to have retaliated in a very measured way, some rocket attacks on, a ba on some bases in Iraq that, that uh, didn't kill any American service personnel. Uh, we now know that some people may have been injured, uh, but not all that seriously. Um, why didn't the assassination produce sort of the hot war that some of us were worried about in the days following? Well, let's not forget before we delve into that question that Iran shot down an airplane that was leaving Tehran and more than 100 people were killed who were Iranian Americans, Iranian Canadians, and Iranians, so I think 167 people. That is really 
horrific, I think, that because uh, the United States decided or President Trump decided that this was the right time to uh, assassinate Qasem Soleimani and to do so in such a um, public way, there was a military officer in Iran sitting and checking his, I don't know, radars and hit a button, and that was the explanation from the Iranian government. I think that that was a mistake, of course, on the part of the Iranian government, and I think that if that had not happened, maybe they would have tried to retaliate in different ways and continued retaliation. Um, but I also think that Iran probably... Uh, I, I find it not so credible when there is a lot of talk about North Korea attacking the U.S. or Iran attacking the U.S. In truth, neither Iran nor North Korea or any other enemy that the United States have, um, they just do not have the power, military power, that can match the United States. They would be destroyed very quickly. And so, of course, they did a couple of rocket attacks, and then they ended up shooting down a plane that was carrying their own people, which maybe there's another story there, and we'll learn it in 20 to 30 years. But I don't agree that there was a credible threat that was coming from Iran suddenly at the beginning of this year. And I think since there was no credible threat, there was no need to actually it becoming another world war or a war because... That's one perspective. On the other hand, we could also say the war was there and still continues. It just doesn't look like the kind of war that we're used to see. So I, I mostly agree with that. Definitely the shooting down of the plane, of the passenger plane, according to Iranian officials, by accident because of this attack had an impact on Iran's uh, reaction. But I actually, from the beginning, I, I, I thought that Iran was going to, to react very rationally to this. And Iran's reaction to the assassination of Soleimani was the kind of reaction that we would expect in international relations of a rationally acting state. This is exactly what we would expect, especially when assessing the relative power. I mean, remember, the Iranian leadership, the Iranian government, and also Iranian activists know exactly what is going on domestically in the United States. So all of the speculation that we have here and knowing that there probably wasn't an imminent threat, and as, as you said, if there was an imminent threat, and we haven't seen any evidence, and our elected officials are telling us that they haven't seen any evidence of an, an imminent threat. So, And we know in Iraq already that there had not been the kind of threats um, that we were told before we went into Iraq. So, so it, it's hard for me to believe that there actually was anything concrete that necessitated the assassination of Soleimani at that particular moment, uh, except maybe to score some other points. Um, Israel had been pushing for some sort of an um, American action in Iran for a very long time. Um, I think from the Iranian perspective, they know that there's elections in the United States in November. They know that Trump has been impeached. Um, they understand all of this. They, they understand all of the details concerning this. Uh, and they also understand, and they're also taking a position uh, to repair relations with other countries because one of the biggest and I think more egregious long-term side effects of what Trump did in withdrawing from the agreement uh, was losing U.S. trust. 
we reduced our power globally. We reduced our impact. We reduced our credibility. Because even though it's true, what Gizem was saying before, that American presidents, every new administration changes its foreign policy, we do have a norm of of, of honoring our agreements. We don't just erase, in a democratic administration, we don't erase what the previous administration did. Uh, Obama was struggling very much with what his predecessor, George Bush, did, and he had to continue those policies even if he didn't agree with them and to, uh, as gracefully as he could, change them. Uh, this type of, uh, of withdrawing of an agreement that was signed by previous administration in such an abrupt way, basically tearing up the paper. Um, same thing with the Paris Agreement. Um, we see this from the Trump administration, has hurt the United States globally in a very big way. Uh, and Iran and other countries, not just Iran, are reassessing whether American administrations down the road can actually be trusted. Even if we have a new president next year, if that president signs an agreement or signs a treaty, uh, or advances any foreign policy, will we be trusted that eight years later that would not be reversed? Uh, and that is a very, very big loss uh, for American um, power and for, for, for our future foreign policy successes. Gazem, what about reverberations within the region to this? Uh, uh, the other countries uh, and the other conflicts that are going on, uh, what, what impacts uh, can we see or might we see in the coming months? Well, I think it depends on how much Iran was actually involved in Iraq and Syria and if the killing of Soleimani, because as him being the leader of the Quds Force, will actually diminish the power or the organization of the Quds Force. But of course, as Western scholars, we have very little actual information about how the um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps actually operate. It is possible that if Iran decides to send more uh, forces to Iraq, Syria, and other places, that they may then end up having less military strength in domestically. And my, my guess is they're going to try to avoid that kind of a situation and focus instead on... Um, reinforcing their own internal military and police state. So that might mean that we would have even more conflict or chaos coming out of Iraq and Syria after the withdrawal of forces, American forces a couple months ago. If now the Iranian forces also withdraw or their power is diminished, that is probably going to create a lot more space for um, ISIS to try to regain power. I think it's probably also going to complicate Turkey's position in the region. I think Turkey right now is a little bit overstretched in terms of its foreign policy involvement in the region. It is trying to prevent or at least create some kind of a red line between Turkey and Syria in order to contain the Kurdish movement. It is also recently has gotten involved in the Libyan conflict, lending support and training to the Libyan government, which is located in Tripoli, but there's a lot of different groups that are also trying to gain power. I'm not sure that Turkey can also emerge as a balancing actor 
if Iran actually withdraws from all the places they're involved in. So it is possible that this will actually strengthen Saudi Arabia, um, and that may have been a rather, either an acknowledged or hoped-for goal of the assassination of Soleimani. I think it's still a little too early to tell, but the recent couple of declarations of President Trump, which are very, I mean, from its the beginning of his term, he's been very supportive of Saudi Arabia. And he has also tweeted in, in a couple of speeches, has praised Saudi Arabian control or involvement in the region. This may actually strengthen Saudi Arabia because these are the three main powers in the region, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. And when two, one is overstretched and the other is trying to recalibrate, making sure that they can actually manage the domestic and international commitments, it's probably going to be the case that Saudi Arabia will uh, expand its power and control, I think. What about Iraqi uh, domestic politics? Uh, certainly, uh, the Iranians have a lot of influence in Iraq. Uh, there are a lot of Shiites in, their, in Iraq who are, uh, I guess, friendly with Iran. What might be the impact in Iraq? And uh, certainly that's of interest to the United States, given the commitment we made and the number of American soldiers that died in the Iraq war, uh, ostensibly to create a friendly Iraqi regime. Is that kind of been blown up here, or what do you think is going to happen? Ruth, what do you think? So right after the assassination, the Iraqi parliament voted to uh, expel U.S. forces from Iraq. So that's a signal of what Iraqi elected officials um, are hearing from their constituents. Um, so the Iraqi sentiment is definitely, um, there, there was definitely anger in Iraq from my understanding, and my understanding is based on the information that's available to us, that they were, uh, they, they were not notified. And again, this is a very important point. Assassinating an Iranian general on Iraqi soil means that then the retaliation happens in Iraq. So it means that uh, Iraqi civilians are put in danger by the, this American action. Where you're, they're caught in the crossfire. Um, and this is, not, this, this is not something that we can, should take lightly. And for the Iraqis, this is a violation of their sovereignty, of their state sovereignty. And at some point, the United States has to decide, are we occupying Iraq or is Iraq an independent state? Um, in terms of actions like this, especially when we're talking about an ally, and Iraq is supposedly an ally uh, that where we spent a lot of money and we, as you said, um, spilled a lot of blood. We owe them the courtesy of informing them if we're taking military action on their soil, uh, which in this case did not happen. So uh, this is, again, another rift that we created between us and Iraq. Uh, it only achieved the opposite because immediately after that, the Trump administration said that we're sending 3,000 more troops to the Middle East. So, again, a reversal Those of this. Those troops are going to Saudi Arabia, they're going to, Yes, for money. Yeah. Um, so, right. the, so, the kind of, the, the, again, it raises the whole question of, are we decreasing our presence in the Middle East? Are we increasing our military presence in the Middle East? Uh, is our military for sale? Uh, are we protecting Saudi Arabia? Who are we protecting Saudi Arabia? Why do we need more troops in Saudi Arabia? And again, Saudi Arabia is, it, it, like Iran, Saudi Arabia is a very extreme Islamic regime. It's not a democracy. Uh, and yet we are very friendly to it. And, and it does point 
to American hypocrisy when it comes to uh, speaking about intervention in favor of protesters, in favor of democratic movements, uh, when we kind of pick and choose where we want to, to pursue this. Uh, so our values do not seem very solid in this case. Right. I, I have read press reports that the Kurds in Iraq are in favor of continued American military presence there, even though we seem to have betrayed the Kurds in Syria by withdrawing a, a, a few months ago and allowing the Turks to move into their territory. In spite of that, the Kurds, why, why would that be? Why would the Kurds be interested in a continued American presence? Well, I think there are a couple of possible explanations. One is we shouldn't assume that, you know, the Kurds in Iraq and Syria and Turkey actually agree or on the same page when it comes to American involvement or what they expect from Turkey or what they expect from Iran, like other political actors. Yeah, we probably should say something about who the Kurds are and, and, and the fact that they are in these different countries. You want to spell out a little bit of background um, there? Sure. Uh, so Kurds are an ethnic group. They live in Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. They were promised to have their own nation state at the end of the First World War by the British at least for a while, but they never got it. They have identified as a nation and they see themselves as a nation, but they're also part of different nation states. So they fight against Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. Sometimes they work together in terms of working together across national borders. And sometimes they have to actually find new coalitions their goal in Turkey is to have their own autonomous region, which they have not been able to do, although they've gained some political rights over time, but then they were also uh, eliminated. I don't want to go on and on about it, but it is a mess <laughs> that was created not... Oh, another Middle Eastern mess. Yeah. Surprise, yeah. surprise. Uh, well, I mean, I don't think we want to uh, show this uh, region as, you know, they've always been fighting with one another. Um, let's not forget that, you know, A, Europeans fought, they've had the 30-year war, the 200 years war, etc. And also, these wars are not just happening with no American or European involvement. They go back to U.S and European colonialism in the region. So going back to the Kurds, why do we have this problem of the Kurds? Is because borders of the region were drawn according to European interests and not according to what the people in you know, Kurdish regions or Arab regions wanted and desired. So here we are 100 years later uh, discussing the similar issues, uh, but it's really surprising to me, especially as, you know, over the years of becoming a professor and learning about this a lot more, that we seem to forget the history of U.S. involvement in the Middle East every time something happens. Uh, Dr. Benarzi talked about the 1953 coup and the how the U.S. toppled a democratically elected prime minister. I'd also like to just talk about, you know, just briefly Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 was largely not achieved or that was the main reason, but the Iranian hostage crisis 
played a very important role in making sure that he was elected as president. Documents recently came out that were for a long time classified, I think, that shows the a, a, a presidential campaign for Ronald Reagan tried to ensure that the Iranian hostage crisis went a little longer than it would need it to be and became an even more crisis so that this impending threat would actually allow some Americans to vote for him. Um, yes, I mean, for some of our younger listeners who were not al alive at the time, I was. Uh, we have to remember that uh, during that hostage crisis, it was, it was the leading news story constantly for months, and that every night on the evening news, and in those days there were only three news, this is before the days of cable TV, there were three major networks, and every network led the news with, this is the you know, 60th day of the, the, that Americans are being held hostage in Iran. So this was something that was had a great impact in the United States. And I think you are right, Gazim, it did. Uh, as an Americanist, I wouldn't say that it, it was determinative in Reagan's election, but it certainly contributed to Reagan's election to, as a, to president, because Carter was, was widely blamed for the continuation and the, the failure to come to some agreement that would release the, the hostages. And the fact that the, that the, the, the crisis occurred at all was blamed on Carter. Uh, so, so yes, that was, that was a factor. Uh, but, but let me bring up something else that I actually just came Kurt, to me. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure, go ahead, Ruth. So, so in addition to what Gizem just said, the Kurds also, in Iraq, there are two political parties for the Kurds. There's two main strands of the Kurds. They're not united, and they haven't been also under Saddam Hussein, um, and they were competing. The Kurds are mostly located in the northern region of Iraq that is very oil-rich. So that should say a lot of why Americans are very, the American administrations always try to play close with the Kurds. Saddam Hussein had this kind of love-hate relationship. On the one hand, this is the region where they were, on the other hand, um, right after Reagan got elected, there was the Iranian Revolution, 1980 to 1988. There was the Iran-Iraq War. It was a very bloody war. It lasted for a very long time, thanks to us in part um, for supplying arms. Um, but this is a war where the Iraqi government, Saddam Hussein, used non-conventional weapons, mostly chemical weapons, to attack its own people, and the Kurds were the target of that, um, some factions of the Kurds. The Kurds were seen as disloyal. Some parts of the, some, again, one faction of the Kurds were seen as disloyal. So the Kurds remember that. They're a minority of the Shiite, Sunnis, and Kurds that are the kind of biggest makeup of the Iraqi population. The Kurds are third in number. So it's hard for them to compete with a Sunni majority and the, and the Shiite. The, the big Shiite population uh, uh, in Iraq. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why the, the, the Kurds in Iraq are much more friendly to U.S. forces and to the United States, uh, because they see the United States as possibly protecting them from, from a regime that would not include as much representation for them. And, and, and because they are uh, surrounding those oil fields, um, they're a strategic alliance for the United States as well. So we've been, give, we've been assisting them. I'm glad you brought up oil because that is exactly what I was thinking about as you were, as you've been talking here uh, about the, the role that oil has played. You know, historically in Middle East politics, uh, certainly 
connected to the European and colonial interventions over the years. Uh, but I'm also thinking about this in terms of the future, where one would think that the world is going to move eventually to renewable energy sources, uh, that certainly we know that the, the path we're on now of exploiting fossil fuels uh, is not sustainable for the globe, uh, that all that carbon going into the atmosphere uh, is, may in fact already have created a disaster for the future uh, environment. Uh, we don't know for sure, but certainly the only path away from that is to stop burning fossil fuels. As my uh, sort of green uh, friends say, we've got to keep those fossil fuels in the ground, keep that oil in the ground. How is that going to affect the Middle East, a region that at least economically seems to have been for decades now dependent upon extracting this resource? Saudi Arabia is very, very wealthy. I'll give it as an example, but other Gulf countries too. And they worry about this. So the issue of diversification of the economies of some of these rentier states, the states that rely on oil, has been discussed now for a couple of decades. This is not something that is new. They know that they rely on oil way too much. Saudi Arabia has been making overtures using its wealth to try to get in front of this problem by uh, funding all sorts of ventures uh, that are green ventures. Um, so basically buying alternative energy sources as, as owners, taking ownership of them. So they, they fully understand this, and this is one of the reasons that they try to position themselves as a very strong power broker where they are buying interests in the West. They're lobbying, obviously, for the continuation of fossil fuels, the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy is important, and they have been a, they have they have put a wrench in that transition uh, by with their policies. Um, I'm not so sure there's going to be all of a sudden a breakdown. They're giving they're gonna, not going to go down without a very big fight uh, because this is their survival and the survival of these regimes. Um, I don't know what you think about this. Um, I mean, I, I agree with what you said, and I think that's a good point. Um, the only thing I would add is there's a tendency to separate environmental issues from issues related to war and violence and then the issue of refugees coming from Middle East and North Africa, whereas in fact all of these issues are related. Uh, climate change and environmental degradation and famine has contributed to the Syrian civil war and the, you know, has then contributed to the refugees leaving and seeking refuge in you know, European countries, etc. And the, there is a reason why uh, we need to think about all of these issues as integrated and not just for American interests, although that's, you know, if we don't want refugees to come, then we need to be aware that climate change and civil war is related. But more so because it is about, you know, human life in these regions. And it is something that is um, making people's lives very difficult, living in war, living under economic sanctions, or living in places where the climate change uh, impacts in the harshest way. And I hope and I, I don't know this hope will be realized, to see more of a discussion of how human life in, these, in this region is impacted by decisions made 
by um, politicians over here. And uh, that's the part that I think is most concerning. In terms of oil, I think it will take a long time for the region to be independent of income that comes from oil. But I think we could also say that for the entire world. Uh, I also hope to see that kind of a development. But it, I, I hope that you know we figure out a way to have energy that is not reliant on oil before we destroy human and animal life, which is, seems to be what we're doing right now. Very good. Uh, I hoped that we might talk a little bit about Israel. Well, let, let's just take a couple of minutes. Ruth, could we haven't mentioned Israel's involvement here. You want to give us a maybe oh, three to five minute uh, sort of rundown of how Israel has been impacted by these events, yeah. what implications, what's going on might have for the upcoming third Israeli elections in a year. Right. <laughs> um, uh, Third and maybe not the last in the next year. Um, so Benjamin Netanyahu, had, the prime minister, the current um, prime minister in transition, has been pushing for action against Iraq. He, he was a, the vocal, the one big vocal leader who was opposed to the agreement signed by the Obama administration and Iran. Uh, he even came to Congress um, uh, at the invitation of the Republican majority to give a speech uh, while Obama was a sitting president trying to convince elected officials in the United States to vote against this agreement. Uh, he did everything he could. There's some uh, information that had come out that he was trying to push for some American action. The Israelis didn't want to do this directly because the Israelis did not want to get into a war with Iran directly. But this was also at the bottom of, of Netanyahu's disagreement with his own top military officials who were actually very supportive of the agreement that the, that the Obama administration signed with Iran and had assessed that the Iranians are complying with that agreement. And they said that, that from their perspective, this was the best option for longer-term security for Israel. So for him, as far as the analysis, you know, that I think is um, most reflects on the Israeli politics, this was really kind of more of a domestic politics issue. To deflect attention away from the Palestinians, from the occupation, uh, Iran is a great enemy to have, uh, and for Israel to show a strong muscle. Apparently, the Israelis were notified or somehow involved in the Soleimani assassination. Um, intelligence information that came from Israel was information that was used to locate where Soleimani is and to assassinate him. Israel has experience, as I said before, in targeted assassinations that are part of its ongoing security um, foreign policy. Netanyahu is not taking credit for it, but he's certainly happy about it. He's What he is able to use it as a way to leverage domestic politics now in this election campaign and saying, you see, I got it right. I knew I knew what Iran was up to. I have influence globally. I'm so close to the American administration. No other elected official in Israel could have such a close relationship with the Trump administration. Um, look at how I'm pulling the strings and, I'm, and, and things are getting done to benefit Israel's interest, at least the Israeli interest that, that Netanyahu's administration um, 
thinks are Israel's interests. So he definitely is using this in the campaign, including in helping that shepherd potentially an announcement of the American peace plan, the peace plan that has been discussed ever since before uh, Trump got elected, that there's going to be some like great big grand plan. Um, there are some journalists are reporting that this plan is going to be released before these next elections in Israel. Up until now, the, the United States did not didn't release them, waiting until after the election's results were in. So this is questionable whether this is election interference, because if this helps Netanyahu or if this hinges on Netanyahu being elected or if he can come with it uh, to the Israeli people, to the electorate, and say, see, this is on the table, only I can implement this. Without me, this is not going to happen. He's now trying to save his skin from indictments. Uh, so for, for for him, it's a, it's a, it's a personal uh, life or prison fight. And it's very difficult to separate the personal from the national interest in this case. Well, thanks, Ruth, for that quick rundown. So thanks to both Gazim Zanzerchi and Ruth Benardsi, uh, professors of political science at Providence College, for enlightening us about the range of, of issues created by the events of recent weeks of the Suleimani assassination. So thanks very much for being with us. 